electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. You're listening to Tech Check in progress. When your colleague, Secretary Yellen, was before this committee, she told me that federal debt, which was then about 105% of GDP, she said, quote, that's not a number that I think is fiscally irresponsible. She also went on to say, quote, if interest rates are zero, we could substantially have a higher debt burden. And in the formula in the following questions, she alluded to Japan and the fact that it could be about double of where we are now, meaning about 60 trillion dollars of debt, if you use her math. So do you agree with Secretary Yellen that having a national debt of over 100% of GDP is fiscally responsible, given that interest rates can change and that historically low interest rates can't always be expected? I guess I would say it this way. We're not on a sustainable path, and we haven't been for some time. And that means that simply the debt's growing faster than the economy. By definition, that is unsustainable. There will become a point there will be a point at which we, it becomes a problem of, of servicing the debt. We're not at that point. We're not close to that point. But it is, we will need to get back uh, where revenues and spending are better aligned. We don't need to pay the debt down. We just need to have the economy growing as fast or faster than the economy over a long period of time. And we, we must do that. I, I wouldn't say any particular level. There is no level that I can point to that where there's a lot of science behind it being a problem. But we know that the path is not sustainable. It's interesting that you allude to growth being part of the solution. Um, I want to talk about regulation for a minute, particularly uh, since the Biden administration delayed oil and gas lease sales again uh, this week due to environmental protests. So if we pursued policies to increase American energy production by approving more leases and building more pipelines to transfer that energy and cut down on regulatory barriers to make it easier for folks to produce energy and produce anything. Wouldn't that make a real impact on energy prices and inflation in general without us needing to use the Fed to slow the economy with monetary policy to deal with inflation? So these questions of the, the, the whole set of questions around energy are, are really questions for elected people. We don't, we don't have a mandate uh, there, obviously, uh, um, the more supply, the the more supply there is, the price of something can go down. But th- these are trade-offs that you really have to weigh as elected officials. Rather, than I'll I'll narrow it just for a minute. Do you believe that the vast amount of regulation is an impediment to economic growth? I, I will say this: we we try hard at the Fed to weigh the costs and benefits of regulation, and we do think it's important to to think about it that way because there are there are there are benefits to regulation. But there are costs, and we don't want we want, don't want the costs to be any higher than they need to be because that does weigh on economic activity. Yes, I mean when you talk about somebody trying to buy a home and now they're questioning it because of the rise in mortgage rates, and then I hear for years that the twenty five percent of the cost of a new home is due to regulation at some level. So that's the point I'm trying to make: is that we need to be very cautious with our regulations because a lot of 
um, it's constraining our growth and the growth ultimately which solves this fiscal problem. So the point I'm trying to make is that we have much better tools like deregulation which can free up supply rather than just monetary policy. And freeing up supply could largely solve the inflation problem for hardworking Americans and not send us into a recession. So again, I thank you for being here and Chairwoman, I yield back. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Iowa, Mrs. Axney, who is also the vice chair of the subcommittee on housing, community development and insurance is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairwoman, and uh, thank you, Chair Powell, for being here. It's good to see you. Uh, we've been talking inflation, of course. We know it's hurting Iowa families and families across the country, and all of us here have an absolute responsibility to address this, and I appreciate the comments of my colleague, Representative Himes, because I've sure heard a lot of talk about how bad inflation is from my colleagues over there on the other side of the aisle, but I sure haven't heard much about the solutions that they want to provide. So I'm here to work on those solutions, and I'm glad to have you here to talk with us about that. We actually need to reduce inflation, and we've got to figure out what's driving it. So the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank just put out some research yesterday looking at how much um, inflation was driven by supply versus demand. What they found was that supply factors are responsible for more than half of the current level of inflation. And of course, I don't need to tell you that while prices increasing are hurting people across a heck of a lot of sectors, gas prices have really been driven up over the last uh, few months. So Chair Powell, uh, on, on gas prices, could you talk about some of the supply constraints that have pushed gas and energy prices higher recently? Sure. So, um, you know, it, it, two, two big things would be just one, the, the price of oil is set globally. Uh, and um, and the, that's one, so we, we just take that price. And the second, second piece of it is the spread that refiners earn. So if ref, refinery is at capacity and spreads are high, then you have a high spread there. And we know that the price of oil went up, uh, went up quite a bit, started going up early in the year. And it's now come down a little bit in the last week or so, but those are the two things that have contributed to, to the spike in, uh, in gas prices that we saw. We did see uh, gas prices moving up, but they, they really move up, moved up quite sharply beginning in, in the early parts of this year as the war came into focus. Thank you. So you talked about, uh, you know, a couple of pieces where folks are making more money and you talked about the refining process and that crack spread. And I, I think they're around $60 right now. Um, so basically what's happening is they're making more money because supply is down. So would you agree that increasing the supply of gas could meaningfully lower prices? I'd say it's hard to argue with that. Sure. Okay. <laughs> well, the U.S. hasn't built a major refinery since 1977. So, of course, as we know, this isn't a recent issue. It's a long-term lack of investment. And so with so many parts of our economy, and you actually touched on that earlier. Now, here's the question I'd like to ask you. Will raising interest rates help increase supply here with fuel? And are there other economic tools to do that? No, we can have no, really, we can't have any effect on the price of oil or the, certainly the supply of energy. And, you know, the, the, the tools are in the hands, they're not in our hands. Okay, thank you for pointing that out. So I know that the Fed absolutely wants to play a role in bringing inflation down, but I want to make sure that we are looking at those solutions and trying to understand what better tools we have. Are there better options out there that you could suggest right here? Honestly, uh, you know, we're, 
we're an agency with a narrow but important mandate and a set of tools, and our focus is on using our tools. We think there's a job to do on demand, uh, and I, 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 I don't see us giving advice to Congress or, or other agencies on how they might use their tools. Okay, well, I appreciate that, and um, hopefully at some other time we can talk a little bit further about that. I want to move on uh, to housing here as well. The, in uh, the 2010s, we saw less homes built than each of the previous four decades, and we're more than 5 million homes short of where we should be. Boy, do I see that all over Iowa, in small towns in particular as well. I've talked to businesses that want to expand, but they can't do so because there are not enough houses there. And so housing is one of the most sensitive areas uh, relative to interest rates. So I want to ask the same thing here. Will raising interest rates help supply there? And are there other tools that we should be looking at to do that? So I, I would agree with you. There's a, there's a problem with uh, longer-term housing supply and the difficulty of creating um, uh, adequate housing. Um, our, what our tools can do is they can, you know, in the near term and medium term, they can restore a better balance between demand and supply in the housing market. You've had extraordinarily high housing price increases really across the country over the last couple of years, and that's because of a lot of demand and very low rates. And you're seeing a housing, the housing uh, sector s slow down to some extent because of higher, higher mortgage rates now. And so do you have anything that uh, we should be on our radar or that we could be looking to do to assist with this? You know, I, I do think that uh, these, are, these are issues for Congress uh, around housing supply. If you talk to builders, and we, we do talk to builders, we had a group in last week, they, they, they will talk about the longer term issues, lack of supply of lots, lack, lack of workers, lack of, uh, uh, you know, appropriate zoning and things like that. I mean, these are national issues. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. The gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Hollingsworth, is now recognized for five minutes. Morning. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. Before we get started on my questions, I just wanted to comment on Representative Axney's testimony or conversation or questions. I love the fact that she's beginning to recognize how heavy the regulatory burden has been in the refining space that has led to an underinvestment in the Biden war on energy especially on American-produced energy, continues to bear the fruit that they expected. And that is a deep concern for Americans that are paying more at the pump. We collectively find ourselves in the present situation because we fail to anticipate the future, even if that future is inherently uncertain and probabilistic. You said a few moments ago, we have a job to do on demand. I like that. And in the recent past and present, the policy signals I feel like have been unambiguous for the Fed. Inflation's at a 40-year high. The labor market is robust. Unemployment bouncing along multi-decade lows. Economic growth has been very high. But I worry that that lucidity is a luxury that is fleeting. I believe the future will be more ambiguous as we head into a time where economic growth seems to be approximately zero and labor market weakness is beginning to emerge. I think those policy signals will be less clear going forward. Economic growth in Q1 was negative, albeit for reasons I think you called technical in nature, but still negative nonetheless. Q2 economic growth is currently projected to be approximately zero according to the GDP Now tracker and many economists. Weakness in the labor market, while nascent, is beginning to emerge. Still yet, inflation as a lagging indicator remains, as you put earlier this week, very, very high. 
I've certainly praised the Fed's tardy yet sudden total focus on price stability, which will come, as you said, at the cost of aggregate demand reduction. Technical reasons or not, America will feel aggregate demand reduction where GDP growth is already zero as a recession. So I am curious to hear your thought process in an environment where inflation is steadying and or coming down, but still yet at multiples of your target, and unemployment is escalating quickly and economic growth is negative. Tell me a little bit about how you'll think about that environment and approach that from a policy and rate setting perspective. I guess I'd start by saying that that's not the environment we see or expect. We actually do think that growth this year and the second half of this year should still be fairly strong. It is coming down from the very high reopening levels of last year, but uh, the first quarter was, was somewhat anomalous. Private spending was, was actually at a very healthy Tell level. me about how you'll think about that environment. I assume that you could be correct, but there's a chance you could be incorrect about that soft landing prediction. So the, the way our tools work, what we're trying to achieve is, <clears throat> is to have a moderation in demand so that supply can catch up, mm-hmm. and so that that'll take pressure off of, off of resource utilization right. and inflation can come down. That's what we're right. trying to achieve. But that, inflation will come happen, down after that fact. Demand will come down first. Inflation will lag that, where inflation remains That's right. multiples of your target, but unemployment, because of that sagging demand, goes up. Economic growth is depressed because of that sagging demand. Tell me how you'll think about that environment. So that, the way we think about it from a policy standpoint is, we're of course, we raise interest rates and shrink the balance sheet. That affects broad financial conditions, Indeed. and that affects the economy. So we'll, the question we'll be asking is, is you know, is our policy rate, that's the thing we control, is it at the right level so that it's affecting financial conditions in the economy in the way that we need and intend? <clears throat> and I want to know how you will intend to affect them where unemployment is going up and economic growth is negative, but inflation remains high. Well, I, I, th- I think you would, I mean, in that hypothetical situation, I yeah. think you would say that, that that would be a setting in which inflation could be expected to come down. We've, as I've said, we'd, we'd like to see inflation coming down as well. Right. So the question is, you've got so choices. So you could move you rates could, down or steady rate escalations in advance of inflation hitting your target as long as you saw it beginning to come down if economic conditions or your other mandate, full employment, begin to show weakness? As one of my colleagues used to say, at every meeting, it's it's the same question. Do you raise, leave them the same, or bring them down rates, Mm -hmm. right? So I think, you know, once, I I think uh, we'd have to see what's happening. We'll try to make good judgments in real time, but the, the main thing is we can't fail on this. We, we really have to get inflation down to 2%. So we're going to want to see evidence that it really is coming down before we declare any kind of victory. And so I think we'd be reluctant to cut. Well, this will have real costs to Americans. So I want to make sure that we're forward thinking about what is going on in the real economy, not just watching a lagging indicator that is inflation. And with that, I'll yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from New Jersey, Mr. Gothheimer, who's also the vice chair of the subcommittee, national security, International Development and Monetary Policy is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. Uh, Mr. Chairman, the most recent Consumer Price Index report indicated that the largest component of the CPI, shelter owned and rented, both owned and rented, has increased 5.5% since last year. Estimates I've seen show apartment rental costs up 15% or more over the last year. Do you believe the CPI measure of shelter costs understates the actual increase in housing costs? And, and do you have any suggestions for actions Congress can take to lower housing costs for Americans in the short and long term? There's some sense in which it might understate costs because it's, it's not capturing uh, leases that, that, are, uh, that haven't turned over yet, right? So 
it's, it's really looking at leases that are turning over. So, so probably it's a, a higher rate. You know, overall, we think it's a decent, a decent measure. Uh, it, it also remember that, that in the CPI, housing services has a weight that's double in the measure that we, 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 we look at uh, personal consumption expenditure inflation. We think that's a better, more sophisticated, a better representation of the inflation that's actually happening in people's lives. So we would tend to look at that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I do want to shift to another issue that's covered in your June report. I've been engaged in discussions on cryptocurrency policy and have long warned that a run on stablecoin has the potential to, to stabilize financial markets. My concerns were realized in part last month when the so-called stablecoin terror collapsed. Your report highlighted the danger of that event and called for congressional action to protect consumers and financial markets. My draft legislation, the Stablecoin Innovation and Protection Act, would establish a definition and requirements for qualified stablecoin and define as cryptocurrencies redeemable one-to-one -one for U.S. dollars. This legislation would reduce financial instability in the markets and protect consumers and support innovation in fintech. It would create also a pathway for banks and non-banks to acquire qualified status for the stablecoins they issue. With federal oversight, do you believe non-bank entities can be reliable issuers of qualified stablecoins if they can prove they are fully backed by cash or cash equivalents? So, as you know, we've recommended that Congress look at this, and there are many, many approaches, including yours. Uh, you know, the President's Working Group did recommend it, that, that stablecoins be issued by insured depository institutions. I, I think it's great that Congress is looking at different approaches and, and, and evaluating those questions. What you really want, though, is you want to be sure that those entities are appropriately regulated and in our view, in some sense, at the federal level. So, um, but I, I think it's, uh, that's, that's going to be a question for Congress. You know what the PWG came up with, but mm -hmm. I think there are different approaches. Do you, do you have any views on who the primary regulator should be at all? You think that's all up to Congress? Like, would the OCC being a, would you have a problem with the OCC being a primary regulator? You know, for, for national bank charters, yes. But, I mean, the thing is, stable coins are used now principally in, in the capital markets, as you know, uh, around the, the, the platforms, the, you know, the, the digital finance platforms. And that's more in the bailiwick of the SEC. If there were going to be payment stable coins, you know, we should be involved. And if it's going to be about banks getting involved, it'll be the banking regulators. So I think it's, it's going to be, we're blessed by, a, you know, a, a plethora of, uh, regulatory agencies in the financial sector. So that'll need to be sorted out. Do you think that's something, given the challenges we've had in the last months, that's something we have to move quickly on? Are you concerned with how long it's taking Congress to actually act there? I, I think it's very important. It, it's, it's no different than any other big technological innovation. You know, airplanes, for example, there, there, there comes a point at which a new regulatory framework is needed to protect the public and create, you know, fair, preserve innovation and competition, foster support, all that. But that's, that time is coming for digital finance, and I'm, I, I, I think uh, I, I'm encouraged that there are now a bunch of bills and, and you know, proposals and that Congress is working on this. I think it's important that it get done you know, quickly because, as we've seen, these companies can grow really quickly, and um, we, we can also, we've also seen that they can, they can have uh, reverses as well. And, and you think overall you, the, the ideal role, role of the Fed in overseeing stable coins is what? what ultimately, you think long-term, what's the role of the Fed? Well, I, you know, so the one question is around CBDCs, right, is, is if, do we want a private stable coin to, to wind up being the digital dollar? And I think the answer is no. If we're going to have a digital dollar, it should be done by us. We don't know that we need a digital dollar as such yet, but I think that, that, that it should be it should be, you know, government guaranteed money, not private money that is really created for the benefit of the of the private issuer. So 
that's one thing. I think also we're, we're uh, very important in payments, so anything to do with, with, with payments that the public is involved in, we should be involved in that too. Thank you so much, I yield back, thank you. Thank you very much. The gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Rose, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairwoman Waters and Ranking Member McHenry for holding uh, the hearing today, and thank you, Chair Powell, for, for being here with us. A few moments ago, Mr. Himes noted that the American Recovery Plan, I think he meant American Rescue Plan, uh, is not mentioned in the Monetary Policy Report. Chair Powell, is it Federal Reserve practice to comment on bills passed by Congress in the Monetary Policy Report? Um, no. Um, turning to a question that we've obviously talked a lot about today already, you have uh, inflation and rising prices on things like food and fuel are having a devastating impact on people all across Middle Tennessee and indeed across the country. You have told us that you will not comment on fiscal policy, but you have also previously urged Congress to support fiscal spending some of which caused this inflation, in my view. Democrats are still pushing a reckless spending proposal, although reports are that it will be smaller than the one they tried to ram through Congress late last year. So, Chair Powell, will you commit to pushing back as strongly against reckless spending proposals that would exacerbate the current inflation as much as you push Congress to support more fiscal spending during the pandemic? So I, I did... Um I didn't support any particular bill, but I did say that uh, there was more to be done. And, and, and I, by the way, I completely ended that practice uh, at the end of 2020. Uh, was it 20 or 21? Anyway, um, 20, 2020, I stopped. I completely stopped doing talking about that publicly at all. And the reason I did it before was, first of all, I was being encouraged by leadership on both sides of the hill in both, in both parties. They were, they were asking me for ideas. Don't you think we need to do something more? Can you help us? That kind of thing. But that's all done. That's over with. And I, I, I am, I'm not, I, the Fed should not play or seek to play a role in fiscal policy. We have our own mandate. We sure need to stick to that now. Would, in, in light of that statement, would you agree with this statement that the analysis that the Fed had through much of last year and that the administration to some extent continues to advance uh, that that, uh, with, the, with respect to inflation and the policy prescriptions, has proven to be far more transitory than the inflation itself? Well, if, if I understand your question, the, the, um, you, you know, we, we did think that these were going to be passing forces. We thought that these shocks that were hitting, supply-side shocks, we thought they would be like oil shocks have been, where they come and go, and other supply-side shocks, um, commodity shocks of various kinds, as the, as the course of... of uh, 2021 went on, it became increasingly clear, particularly uh, in the fall, that that wasn't going to be the case. We weren't going to see that kind of progress. And we pivoted, you know, seven months ago now, we pivoted to, to, uh, to address this with our policy tools. I, I think our, our judgment in real time proved to be incorrect, but we, it, was, it was not an irrational judgment, and it was one that was very widely held at the time by, you know, by other central banks and economists generally. And it was, but it wasn't about economics. It was how long is this going to last? Are these things that are happening to our economy, which are unprecedented, are they going to get better? Like, for example, millions of people dropping out of the labor force, or uh, you know, the, the the problems we have with the global supply chains. There was no, there was no model of that. We can't look at the last 20 times it happened. 
So that's, but it, you know, for sure, in hindsight, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was not transitory. Thank you. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget estimated that canceling federal student loan debt held by Americans could increase the inflation rate as much as a half a percentage point and would add $1.6 trillion to the national debt. This estimate notably also did not incorporate the possible effect that student loan uh, student debt cancellation would have on increased college tuition prices. Chair Powell, has the Fed done any analysis on the inflationary impact of these proposals to forgive student loans being actively considered by congressional Democrats in the administration? Not that I know of. You know, we would look to CBO and um, legislation. We, we tend to start to put it in our, um, in our, our models of the economy um, when we think there's really, really likely, uh, likely going to be legislation. Generally, though, would you expect forgiving $1.6 trillion in debt, whether it's student loan debt or credit card debt, to have a, an inflationary impact? Well, I, again, I'm going to leave that to CBO to score and also the Congressional, uh, the um, Office of Management and Budget. We, we just routinely just do not score propose, congressional proposals. It would get us involved in political things, and, you know, why would we be independent then? So we, we, to, to be independent, we need to be out of these very difficult fiscal issues, which, which are really your job. Thank you, Chair Powell. I'll yield back. Thank you. The gentlewoman from Massachusetts, Ms. Presley, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. <clears throat> Chairman Powell, without question, the Fed has a role to play in healing our economy. But as with any treatment, uh, the wrong medication can cause even more harm and make the patient more ill. Chairman Powell, at your latest press conference, you stated, quote, wages are not principally responsible for the inflation we are seeing, end quote. I certainly agree with that assessment, as do many economists. Considering what, that wages are not driving inflation, why is the Fed addressing inflation with tools which primarily impact wages, such as interest rates? Well, I, our, our tools principally impact inflation. Not, not necessarily wage inflation. Um, so we're, we're, our job is price inflation. But I will say on, on wage inflation, um, the, the issue is that over time, wages are really a very important, over time looking forward, are very important, particularly for service companies where most of the costs are, are really in, in wages. And wages, we all love to see big wage increases, but these increases that we were having have been having, some of them are just substantially bigger than would be consistent with 2% inflation. Thank you. Um, well, throughout today's uh, hearing, uh, to that point, you've indicated that the Fed doesn't have a more precise uh, tools at your disposal. Chairman, the root causes of the inflation we are seeing are supply chain disruptions outside of the Fed's control, whether it's COVID-19 lockdowns in China or the Russia-Ukraine war, which is why this knee-jerk response to raise interest rates is so alarming. The Fed cannot control the factors causing inflation, but this policy choice would plunge millions of people back into unemployment, dampen wage growth, and tip the economy into a recession. Uh, there's an old adage, Chairman Powell, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You've recently said that the Fed's tools, like interest rates and the balance sheet, are famously blunt and lack precision. So in that case, do you agree that the Fed needs new tools that are more precise to better fulfill its statutory mandate of price stability 
and to maximize employment? Um, no, I, I don't think we're looking for new tools. I, I would just say that a big part of the inflation that's happening is, is really not going to be affected by tools, but a, a big part of it is going to be affected by our tools, and that's the part that's related to demand. Mr. Chairman, but by your own account, you stated on the record that the Fed's current tools are ill-suited to deal with the inflation we are seeing. So perhaps now is the time to expand the Fed's toolkit to meet the unique moment that we find ourselves in. Uh, for example, one tool that could help the, the Fed tailor a more precise response to inflation is direct credit regulation. This would allow the Fed to regulate the availability of credit in the specific sectors of the economy experiencing high inflation without impacting other sectors. Would you support Congress passing legislation to give the Fed more precise tools to tackle inflation, such as this idea? That's, that's, not, a, that's not something we would, we would seek. Of course, it's up to Congress to, to make those decisions, though. But your, at your own admission, your tools are too blunt and not precise enough. So what additional tools do you believe the Fed needs to respond more precisely to inflation? Well, again, we're, our tools are, are they're blunt, but they are the right tools to deal with, with broad aggregate demand. And that is, that, is a, that is a more important determinant of inflation than energy and food prices, as painful as energy and food prices are. The, the bigger piece of it is, 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 is related to demand. We can't help with energy and food prices, to your point, but we can help with aggregate demand, and we do that through the tools we have. We're not seeking a, a deeper involvement in the economy like you're talking about, but again, that's a question for Congress. Congress can, can change our toolkit or our mandate. Well, you know, in this moment of overlapping crises from supply chain disruptions to high inflation, I do believe we need precise policies that respond to the needs of the American people. The Fed knows that raising interest rates will not address the root causes of rising prices, but they will just keep doing so even at the cost of millions of working class people's livelihoods. We need a more sophisticated toolkit for the era we are in to truly heal our economy and tackle inflation responsibly. Thank you. I yield. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman from Wisconsin, Mr. Stile, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chairwoman. Thank you for being here, Chair Powell. Appreciate it. Uh, just a point of clarification. You noted that you ended uh, your public statements in support of fiscal stimulus by the end of 2020. Is that correct? Yes. And so it would be after that that the Democrats, under one-party control, passed $1.9 trillion of additional fiscal stimulus after you it had already stopped making public statements in support of additional fiscal stimulus. I have the timeline correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I, again... I'm not asking you to opine. I just wanted to make sure I had the timeline correct. I, I, I took no position publicly or privately, and neither should the Fed chair do so. Understood. But your public statements in support of additional fiscal stimulus ended in 2020. Yeah, what, the Democrats under one-party control passed $1.9 trillion of fiscal stimulus after that period of time. I just want to make sure I had the timeline. I understand. Let me Let me cognizant of the time we have, and you've noted that, that you think the Fed should not play a role uh, in fiscal policy. I have grave concerns of the fiscal policy that we've seen playing out uh, in Washington, not asking you to opine on that. Looking at 2021, we saw fiscal, uh, we saw real GDP growth uh, about 5.6% in that year. Is that correct? Yes. Over 5%, over a, re a reasonably robust rate. And at that period of time, 
uh, in the year of uh, 2021, we saw the Fed's balance sheet increase uh, by about $1.5 trillion. Is that correct? Sounds about right. So at the period of time where we were seeing reasonably robust economic growth, the Federal Reserve was continuing to build its balance sheet to a tune of $1.5 trillion. And so during the year 2021, the Federal Reserve ultimately purchased about 54% of all federal debt issued by the Treasury. Is that accurate? I don't, I don't know that. If you have the number in front of you. I, I have the number in front of me. I think it's worthwhile. Roughly, roughly half of the federal debt that was issued in 2021 was acquired by the Fed and placed on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. My concern is that that hid the real cost of borrowing borrowing that was being driven by the Biden administration at that time. And my concern is that the Federal Reserve, by increasing their balance sheet by $1.5 trillion at a period of time when Democrats put forward a gigantic stimulus package, after you had stopped your public calls for requesting additional fiscal stimulus, that that's all part of the problem. It's both the fiscal policy and the monetary policy coming together. But let me keep going here for a moment. We paid... In, we, the federal government, paid in debt payments last year $580 billion. Is that correct? I don't know. It, it, that's, that's the numbers I have. It's about 5.8% of our budget, fiscal side. In the projections of CBO interest over the next decade, one of the, one of the, the, the CBO projects that it will triple to $1.2 trillion. But that's assuming, that's assuming federal debt remains in a range of 2.4% to 3.8%. That's the CBO's projections to get to debt payments increasing to 1.2 trillion by the end of the decade. But we're sitting here at a period of time when the 10-year Treasury yield has crossed 3%, 3.16%, I believe, as of yesterday. A year ago, that was 1.48%. So we're already approaching the high interest rate threshold that CBO has for interest on the debt to triple. Do you project that interest payments on the debt, the interest payment number that's impacted by the interest rate set by the Fed will remain in a range of 24 to 3.8%, or do you believe that it will dramatically be above that? We don't, we don't publish projections on, <clears throat> on Treasury rates. So you, as, you're move, as, as interest rates are moving, as you're doing that, I think appropriately so, to address the inflation environment that we're in, the Federal Reserve doesn't project the cost on the debt moving forward? So in, <clears throat> internally, we don't publish, that's what I said, but in, internally we, of course, do have a, we, we have a path for the 10-year, for, the for example, and for many, many years it's always showed rates returning <clears throat> to rates to levels even where we are or even higher. Well, that, that's what goes into our models because we assume over time, for example, we're, we're reversing, you know, uh, we're going to be shrinking our balance sheet by in the range of a trillion dollars a year <clears throat> in coming years. So that'll put more supply out. That should put some upward pressure on rates. Um, so we, we do, it's, it, it's not our business to project this publicly, but that our assumptions are that rates will return to levels that are somewhat higher. Well, let, let, me, let me for the record state that I'm very concerned that we're going to see interest <clears throat> rates remain high. The, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget notes that a 50%, 50 basis points is 143 billion dollars a year in debt. I'm concerned that we're on a path that's very unstable. Appreciate you being here. Madam Chairwoman, I'll yield back. Thank you. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich 
is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. The gentlewoman from New York, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Madam Chair. Um, and, and thank you, Chairman, for coming in uh, uh, to speak with us today. Uh, Chair Powell, in the summer of 2019, which admittedly was a different world, <laughs> um, during a, a financial services committee hearing, uh, you relayed to me that, quote, I would look at today's unemployment as well within the range of plausible estimates of what the natural rate of unemployment is. Do you recall what the unemployment rate was around that time in 2019? I want to say 3.5%. Yes, it was 3.5%. And what is the uh, current unemployment rate today? 3.6%. 3.6%. You also said, quote, when unemployment went way up, you didn't see inflation go way down. So you don't see inflation reacting to unemployment the way it does because inflation seems very anchored. Again, that was at that time. Uh, Chair Powell, would you say that some, you know, uh, briefly, yes or no, but would you say that some of the contributing factors to today's inflation include ongoing supply chain issues, including volatility of uh, commodity prices as a result of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, and companies also raising prices because they can? Well, I, I, I would say on supply side issues, for sure, those are playing an important role. And am I correct that American workers' wage, wage gains have actually trailed inflation? Um, in other words, while the cost of goods went up by 8.6% on average, wages did not increase by that much. It depends. Uh, for some uh, people at the lower end of the spectrum ha actually have been getting positive real wage gains. For most, of, most people, though, inflation has been higher than their wage increases. So on average, we have a wage growth at about 6.1%. So average wages are trailing inflation. Um, it does seem that American workers are not primarily responsible for the inflationary issues that we're seeing today. Um, but despite this, we are seeing some comments from individuals like former U.S. Treasury Secretary uh, Lawrence Summers earlier this year said that in order to contain inflation, the U.S. needs uh, five years of unemployment above 5% or one year of 10% uh, unemployment. Do you agree with that assessment? So I, I understand how that number can be uh, arrived at or derived, but um, I, I think there's so much uncertainty. And in particular, the, the, um, that the answer is going to depend to a significant extent on what happens on the supply side. If we, if we do get these supply side problems uh, worked out, which I think is certainly going to happen in time, then, then, uh, then, then you wouldn't see anything like that. But I, it's a highly uncertain time, and um, our, our intention course, is to, is to bring down inflation while keeping the labor market strong. I think it's important to, to drive home what a 10% sustained unemployment would look like uh, in this country. 
for context, we didn't even reach 10% during the Great Recession. Uh, we did experience 10% unemployment in 1982 following the Volcker shock. Um, but in this market, to get to 10% unemployment, that would require about 10.5 million additional people out of work. And historically, we know that black unemployment is usually double that of white unemployment, correct? Yes, it tends to move at twice the speed, both up and down, but certainly moving up. So when the former Treasury Secretary says he wants 10% unemployment overall, um, he's also saying that we need black unemployment of nearly 20%, or implies that. Um, but Chair Powell, I do think that despite the tools that you, may or, that you don't have, Congress does have tools as well. Um, would you say that the following actions granted in the scope of Congress could be deployed to impact inflation um, using antitrust laws against companies that are raising uh, prices using their market power? Sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear the last part. Would this action, uh, would using antitrust laws against companies that are raising their prices uh, have an, infla an Sorry, impact anti on inflation? Laws? Antitrust? Antitrust laws. Ah, okay. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> the the would, acoustics in here are different. No worries. Would that have an inflationary impact? Um, it's hard to say, really. Would uh, subjecting those companies to a windfall profits tax have a potential impact on inflation? Again, I don't... I, 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 and would requiring say. government contractors to keep a lid on their pricing have imp uh, certain impacts on inflation? You know, there's a long history of price controls when inflation has been high, and it was it was not a successful one. Really, really, it comes down to getting demand and supply in alignment. And uh, if the TED, if the Fed's tools mostly impact demand, um, but most of those inflationary issues could be potentially impacted by supply. How high do you think the Fed would actually have to drive unemployment to actually have an impact? Well, that's, that's going to depend on a lot of things. And, um, you know, ideally, we, uh, we can raise rates. And uh, it's very important um, that we get inflation back down, particularly for people at the margins of society who are suffering the most from inflation. And um, maybe a longer conversation we can have. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. The gentleman from South Carolina, Mr. Timmons is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you, Chairman Powell, for being with us today. Uh, congratulations on being confirmed uh, to your second term as chair. You've got some rocky uh, times ahead. Wish you luck. Um, last time you were here, we talked, uh, we discussed how rising interest rates really inflates debt servicing costs for the federal government. And I know what you're going to say. That's a concern for fiscal policymakers, the Congress, to take into account, not the Fed. And that is mostly true. Um, but I still think it's worth everyone being fully aware of just how costly servicing our debt will be now that interest rates are returning to historically normal levels. Uh, according to the CBO, interest payments on the debt are the fastest growing part of the federal budget. CBO projects that servicing our debt will cost taxpayers $8.1 trillion of the 10-year budget window. $8.1 trillion. Uh, and their inflation assumptions are uh, projected interest rates are, are fairly lower than current levels and quite a bit lower than where rates are likely headed to get inflation under control. And, and I thank you for your efforts to get inflation under control, but for every half percentage point Rate, rate hike that is an estimated 133 billion of annual increases. I'm going to say that again: 133 billion in annual increase uh, in debt servicing costs. Uh, that is just a staggering amount of money. So we, Congress, must get our fiscal house in order. We have to. Uh, there is no other option. The the dollar's position in the world as the global reserve currency is solid, 
and there are no immediate signs of that changing, but if we continue on our current trajectory, uh, that will not always be a given. So uh, my question is, are you worried that if our current fiscal path continues, uh, which I should note with each rate hike, it looks worse and worse, that the dollar's position in the world could be challenged in the long term? Is that a concern? Certainly in the long term. Um, the, you know, the dollar is the reserve currency, and um, I, I don't see it as particularly under threat at the moment, um, given, given the advantages that we have, which are many. But you're right, the, the U.S. federal budget is on an unsustainable path, and we will have to deal with it. The sooner the better. And unsustainable just means that the debt is growing faster than the economy, which by definition over time can't be sustained. Thank you. Um, for the record, I also want to follow up. You stated the following as Congress considered the Biden stimulus. Uh, quote, in addition, workers and households who struggle to find their place in the post-pandemic economy are likely to need continued support. The same is true for many small businesses that are likely to prosper again once the pandemic is behind us. That was from your speech on February 10th of 2021. I just wanted to add that uh, in for the record. Um, one final question. Um, during a meeting last week at the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, the IAIS continued, uh, issued a consultation paper on comparability criteria looking at the use of international capital standard versus the aggregation method. As you know, the U.S. has committed to using an aggregation-like approach here in the U.S. through the National Association of Insurance Commissioner, Commissioners Group capita calculation, and the Fed's proposed building block approach. Moreover, the EU and the UK, through their covered agreements with the US, recognize these approaches uh, to, cap to group capital. Nevertheless, Insurance Europe, a federation of European insurers, representing more than 95% of the European market, takes the view that there cannot be two versions of an international capital standard. So my question is this, will you continue to advocate and support the aggregation method as an alternative to the international capital standard? So I, th I think we're, I, I am, I'm a little rusty on that, but I, I will say this, I know that we're strongly committed to uh, capital standards that work for U.S. insurance companies. I, I get that, but I guess what I'm getting at is we have a different way of regulating insurance here in the U.S., we all know that, and it works for us, and we do not need to let these international bodies change our way of doing things. Uh, we need you to stand up for the American way of doing things and for American businesses. Can you commit to doing that? So I, I, think, that is, that's, I think that's what we're doing. So, okay. yes. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Madam Chair, I yield back. Thank you. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The gentleman from Massachusetts, Mr. Ockham Kloss, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, welcome, Chairman. I want to start by asking you about inflation expectations, which, as you obviously well know, can be very difficult to dislodge once they are anchored in the mindset of consumers. And what the Fed can do both to address inflation, but also to convince Americans that inflation is going to be lowering in the medium term and thereby prevent inflation expectations from getting anchored? Well, so if you look at inflation expectations, and we, of course we measure professional forecasters, households, market-based break-evens and things like that, a broad range of things, you do see that in, people expect inflation to be high in the very near term but they expect it to come down fairly quickly and get back to. So, so generally, as a general matter, the evidence is clear that people do expect inflation to come back down to levels that are consistent with our price stability mandate. But this is the first, we haven't had a test like this, I would say. We haven't had an extended period of high inflation for a long time, and so it's not a comfortable place to be. We, we, Short-term inflation expectations are higher. And it does add, uh, you know, it adds to our desire to move expeditiously and with force to, to, get, uh, to get rates up and then and ultimately to get inflation down. So building on that one degree removed, the only thing more painful than expected high inflation is unexpected high inflation. And it makes it the, the degree to which businesses and consumers do not have confidence in the Fed's ability to control inflation or the, the U.S. government at large, makes it harder for them to make capital investments in the long term, makes it harder to do um, wage negotiations. Is there a measure of the degree of confidence that both business and consumers have in the, in the ability of inflation to remain low that you are tracking so that we can try to measure the degree of confidence people have in, in not having to, to see unexpected infl inflation in the future? So first, I, I agree. But ultimately, this is, uh, the, the point is that if the public retains confidence that inflation will come down, that their ex expectations remain anchored, then it will come down. That, that is, that is the, we think that's how it's Self-fulfilling. Right? So by many, many measures, we, we, we track them all. I mean, we, we track, we put them all in one big measure called the Index of Common Inflation Expectations. We do that and we publish that at various times. And they, it strikes they're sending me though basically that, that message that, that essentially, yes, inflation expectations are anchored. But as I said, that, that's, that's, that's good, but it's not enough. We need to get inflation down because inevitably over time, these, these expectations are going to be under pressure. Are you able to track, though, the, the, it seems like you also want to track volatility within that, own, within that index of inflation expectations to see how much confidence people have that they're not going to see unexpected inflation. Yes, yes. We look at the, we look at the distribution, wow. of the, and, you know, there are some... There's some small signs, concerning signs, and, you know, we just can't allow that. We, we really have to, ultimately, our whole framework is about keeping inflation expectations well and truly anchored so that inflation will return to that anchor. And your credibility in that is, is autocatalytic in, in inflation expectations. So I think it's critical that 
that the businesses and consumers have that confidence. Absolutely. Um, how, can you explain how quantitative tightening, I guess we would call it now, is going to play into that? Un unrolling quantitative easing of the last 10 years? Sure. So it, it's quantitative easing in reverse. So what quantitative easing does is it, it, it reduces the supply of risk-free longer-term assets, and that tends to drive rates down as people want those. And when we, re when we, when we loosen our balance sheet, sorry, when we, when we shrink our balance sheet, what happens is the public will be holding more of that paper and we won't be holding it. And that should have some upward pressure over time. Markets are forward looking, so they're already pricing this in. And you don't project any changes in how you're going to do QT? So we, you know, we, we put out a plan. We thought very carefully about it. We've announced it. Markets have, have seen it. And it's, it's sort of priced in. And I think you know, we would intend to keep to that plan. Of course, one of our principles is that we're always going to be flexible if, if, if that's warranted. Last question for you in the final 30 seconds here, Chairman. Uh, can you give us an update on FedNow and your plans for access both to established banks as well as to financial technology companies? So uh, FedNow is supposed to go live next year. We believe we're on track to do that. We've got people working really hard on it for some time. I didn't catch the last part of the question. And the, how are you going to make access available? Is it going to be just for certain types of banks? Is it going to be for financial technology companies, how are you going to adjudicate access? So that's, that's something we're looking at. We are, you know, we're, we're I mean, mainly it's for, the, for the, the broad sweep of banks, and uh, we'll have to look at going beyond that. I yield back. <clears throat> Thank you. The gentleman from South Carolina, Mr. Norman, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, uh, <clears throat> Chairwoman uh, Waters. Uh, Chairman, welcome. Glad to have you here. Would you agree that housing is a leading economic indicator on the health of the economy or on the direction the economy is going? It's, it's certainly an important indicator. Because it affects so many different facets of the economy. Because it affects so many facets of the economy, is that right? I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time hearing. <clears throat> because it affects so many facets of the economy. In other words, when you sorry. housing, whether it's commercial or residential, you buy a lot of products that uh, are across the spectrum. It's an important, very important sector of the economy for the reasons you point out. And one of the reasons that most economists are predicting a severe recession is uh, housing as a leading economic indicator. Uh, I've done that. That's what I've made my living. Uh, do you realize it's very simple to solve uh, to get the housing at, at a a point that it used that it was under the previous administration. I'm from South Carolina. People are moving there. Do you realize in the last uh, probably four months uh, it's been a severe cutback, despite the fact that people are coming in and need it, and it's because of this administration's war on energy and natural gas. This the Fed can't regulate that. Putin can't regulate that. Uh, it's a direct result of policies of this administration. Um, and one of the reasons that it's basically going to come to a standstill, the war on energy, you can't get afford gas uh, uh, for, your, for your product. Uh, it's a war on the workforce that this, this administration has done. When you pay people not to work, it's kind of in a disincentive to go to work. Um, supply chain that has been mentioned um, when... The call I got uh, four days ago, a leading producer of chicken cannot get corn to feed the poults, the young chickens, is kind of a problem. 
uh, interest rates, which is uh, at your disposal, uh, is severely going to affect the housing industry. Uh, when you're paying a 6% long-term uh, mortgage rate, uh, along with every other cost increase directly caused by the policies of this administration, the housing is going to come to a, star a stopping point as it is as it is, is now likely to have. Um, regulations have been mentioned here. Uh, we now face on simple projects a regulations, and I would point out many of them needless to be 35, 38 uh, percent. That's when you combine all of these things, housing is going to take a uh, tremendous drop. That will affect the economy, wouldn't you say? I think all of those things are affecting the economy. Is greed that has been mentioned here a leading uh, cause of inflation? I, I think it's a macroeconomic phenomenon that's caused by the, by the things we've been talking about. Was greed not a factor uh, four years ago? I, I, you know, <clears throat> I mean, if it's a factor now, were they just less greedy in 16 through 20? It's hard to see why there would have been. Right. And... Did Putin, was he responsible for the low gas prices in, that we experienced from 16 and 20? Uh, not as far as I know. I don't, don't think he had much impact. If he did, uh, it'd be a sad state for the, for the United States. Um, um, you know, I think um, one of the congressmen mentioned about the debt, the um, uh, debt relief for college students that's being proposed by this the, the current administration, how will that have an effect on um, the economy? And I think the number that's been talked about to forgive 50,000 per student, will that affect the inflation and the economy? You know, as I, as I mentioned, we don't, um, we don't score these bills from an inflation standpoint. It wouldn't be positive though, would it? Sorry? I doubt it would be positive, would it? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, for, that's for elected folks. All right, and on the central bank digital currency, would you have to have approval from Congress before the Federal Reserve got involved? I can't imagine that we would move forward without authorizing legislation. So you'd have to have the approval of Congress? Yeah. Yes. Um, well, thank you for what you're doing. You're using the tools that you've, you have at your disposal. Most of this can be eliminated if we had um, uh, a policy now that was pro-business, pro-growth. Uh, but thank you for what you're doing, and congratulations on being reappointed as chairman. Thank you. Thank you. The gentleman from California, Mr. Vargas, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you very I'm over here, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Madam Chair and ranking member. Um, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much for being here, and congratulations, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> You're running into a pretty heavy lift here going forward, but uh, very much I appreciate you being here today. Um, I believe that inflation is real, obviously, and it's hurting a lot of people. It's the causes, I think, that are being manipulated and, frankly, lied about. Uh, and there's one big criticism that I make of you, and also, and especially, I guess, Secretary Yeltsin. And that is that you haven't explained inflation within the context of the world environment, what's happening globally. My good friends on the other side of the aisle love to blame inflation singularly on President Biden and his policies. 
I didn't get a chance to ask Secretary Yellen any questions when he was, she was here last time, kind of low on the totem pole here. But I wanted to scream because every time she led with her chin, as opposed to explaining that this inflation is globally. But now that I have you here, I get to ask you some questions. <clears throat> what is the inflation rate in the European Union? Overall, I want to, I don't, I wouldn't put it's it in It's 8.8% according to Statistica. Did they receive any money from the American Rescue Plan? Uh, not to my knowledge. What is the inflation rate in Estonia? In Estonia, don't know. I mean, they're, they're roughly comparable to ours. It's 20.1%. It's not very comparable no. to ours. It's no, over three times higher than European ours. European democracy. Estonia. Did they receive any money from the American Rescue Plan? Not to my knowledge. How about Latvia? What is the inflation rate in Latvia? No idea. It's 16.8%. Did they receive any money from Biden or the American Rescue Plan? Not as far as I know. How about Bulgaria? 13.4. I knew that one. Poland. What's, you knew that one? No. I oh, I apologize. I'll, I'll let you try with Poland. How about that? They're a friendly nation. 12.8. Did they receive any money from the American Rescue Plan? Or, and if they didn't, why do they have inflation that's so high? Not as far as I know. I didn't. So why is their inflation rate so high? Well, if, in, in Europe, the inflation that they're seeing is principally, I believe, due to um, energy and food, energy prices and food prices. It's due to the war, and it's due to, you know, the situation with Russia being their principal energy supplier. So not the American rest. They didn't receive any money though from the American Rescue Plan. Not as far as I know. Okay, let's keep going. Romania, twelve point four. Slovakia, eleven point eight. Hungary. 10.8, Croatia, 10.7, Greece, 10.5, the Netherlands. Come on. We're you ought to know the Netherlands. In the sense that we're, we're going down, so be lower. 10.2. See? But you do see the, the, I'm glad that this is going. Germany, how about, let's skip to Germany. Very similar to us. I'm not going to guess. 8.7. And the reason I wanted to go through the litany of these things, I keep hearing from my good friends on the other side of the aisle that inflation, inflation somehow magically exists because of Biden's policies, because of the American Rescue Plan. Well, if that's true, then there shouldn't be this other inflation in other countries. It's a global phenomenon. As Clinton used to say, it's the economy, stupid. Here it's the pandemic, obviously, and things that happen. We have a situation around the whole world. Yet, you don't explain it globally. And I, I shouldn't yell at you because I really like you a lot, and I really do think you're doing a good job, trying very hard. But I did want to yell at Yeltsin because she, she didn't explain anything globally. Shouldn't, don't you think you have a responsibility to the American people? I know in my district, most people believe that inflation's only happening here because of the rhetoric that they hear on the other side. And... You guys, I think, have the opportunity and the responsibility to give them the full picture, not this limited picture. And I, and I hope you do so. Again, with that, uh, I'll yield back. Thank you very much, Madam Chair.
You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.